Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Political This That podcast and happy Women's History Month. So for this month, I will be interviewing every week. I'll be interviewing one woman, a student, most likely from a different industry. And this week we have journalism and grateful to be joined by Amir. So hello, hello. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited. The way I started was that I allowed the people to do their own bio. So tell the people your name, um, what school you go to, pronouns, things you like. Let the people know who you are. Okay, so my name is Amira Ali. I'm a third year journalism student at Carleton University. I'm completing a double minor in human rights and indigenous studies. Um, I have been focusing a lot of my time at Carleton, focusing on anti-indigenous racism specifically, um, but a lot of time just uh, dealing with systematic racism and deconstructing and analyzing it in general. Um, I have uh, traveled a lot in the past few years. I've been able to complete a few tr service trips. Um, I've also, I was a past participant in Daughters of the Vote and took, I represented Brampton North and um, took my MPC in Parliament. I also used to work with Nissa Holmes as the outreach coordinator, uh, Nissa Holmes Women's Shelter, which is a transitional shelter that helps um, that helps women who are fighting and uh, escaping domestic uh, domestic violence, abuse, poverty, homelessness, seeking refuge, seeking safe haven. So I was able to launch their first ever um, Hoops for Homes fundraising tournament, which raised over $15,000 for their newest shelter in Scarborough. Um, yeah, and I graduated from St. Thomas Aquinas in Brampton, and I was born and raised in Brampton. Amazing bio. You're very active, and especially your activism has come out. Again, she participated in Daughters of the Vote. For those who don't know, Daughters of the Vote is a program held by um, Equal Voice. Equal Voice is an organization that's main goal is to get more women um, representing she was um, she was in the 2019 cohort if I'm not mistaken right yeah I believe so I think it was 2019 it was uh when I was in first year university so it would have been two years ago yeah and then it's very cool Daughters of the World is a very cool program I she kind of um gave the what's the word the torch to me because this year I'm a representative but Daughters of the World is a very cool program she she literally got to sit in the House of Commons, like took her um, MPC of Brampton North, and she got to see the PM, um, all the leaders, and she really got to be essentially a uh, politician for like a weekend, if I'm not if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I think it was. I think for us, we did it uh, throughout the span of a week. But yeah, we spent a week um, in and out in that area. Yeah. That is so cool. So before we go off onto the main topic of this episode, I'm going to start off with a thing I like to call question period. The question period is a little bit of a couple of questions I asked just to get into the mood and to get into the swing of this episode. So the first question I have for you is what is your favorite place to grab food in Brampton? So I would say I have lots of uh, food spots because I'm a big foodie and I like bubble tea a lot. I would say that one of my favorite places um sorry let me think about it for a second <laughs> take your time we're not in a rush we're not in any rush take your time um I like Nando's a lot which is uh Portuguese chicken I also like doubles and if you don't know what doubles are it's like um a sweet roti with like chickpeas inside of it um it's like it's, it's like Caribbean, West Indian. That's probably one of my favorite places. You could go to Radica's Hot and Spicy to get it or really anywhere in Brampton. There's so many spots. Um, so yeah, probably Doubles or, or Gladiator Burger. It's like a gourmet burger and it's on Lisa Street in Brampton. So really there's just so many options here. There's a lot of different food spots. So any one of those <laughs> would be good with me. It's been a while since I've been in Brampton actually like explored. Where is Lisa Street? Like, give me, is it like, where is it near? So Lisa Street is right across from Bradley City Center. Okay. So literally right across from BCC is um, Gladiator Burger. Because okay. in my head, for some reason, I got mistaken and I thought it was across from um, Shoppers Row. So I was like, I had to ask her just to double check. So I'm not mistaking um, landmarks. Yeah, yeah. So it's right across from BCC. Like we're like, like though it's Clark, Lisa, I think the uh, intersection might be Dixie and Lisa Street or something. Cool, cool, cool. What is your favorite song at the moment? 
Oh, okay. Let me check my playlist, actually. And it can be from like any genre, but like what's the latest song that you have that you've just been like putting on shuffle, not shuffle, on repeat? Probably Martin and Gina by Polo G or Calling My Phone by Lil TJ and, and uh, yo, I never know how to say his name. Is it Six Black or is it Black? I would like, think it's Black, but then I think it's Black, but then see if it- I feel like it's black because I've seen people go like, it's not six black, it's black. So yeah, it- right. Okay. That's what I was thinking. So maybe that one or Feels by Tory Lanez featuring Chris Brown. And I also have been playing Way Out by Jack Harlow a lot too, featuring Big Sean. So don't come for us if it's actually like six like and we say black. It's not our fault that um an artist decided to make a very confusing name. Um, I don't even know. But or on me by Lil Baby. That one I've been playing a lot. Like it's not as new, but I've been playing it a lot. It's like a lot of trap R and B music. Yes. Um, what has been your favorite class you've taken so far in uni throughout your three years and why? Hmm. I would say um, in first year university, I took introduction to disability studies and I learned a lot in that class. It was, um, I really didn't know a lot about ableism and uh, when people who are like, um, like I guess there's so many layers um, to people who face disabilities and I really wasn't exposed to all of them until I took that course. It might be the course I genuinely learned the most in and it opened my eyes to a lot of different aspects. And I was actually gonna minor in disability studies, but um, I was taking so many more courses regarding indigenous studies and human rights that it made more sense for me to do the double minor in those. But that might be one of my favorite courses, if not like my, favorite I would say like top two top three favorite give us another one if you can because you said top two so I have to ask you what's another one is it like a human rights course journalism course so none of my journalism courses (laughs) honestly are my favorite ones um if not I would say like I've had some really really great indigenous studies courses like I mean I've taken so many because it's my minor but I've taken a lot of really great ones um that they're just they just teach you so much about indigenous resistance um like indigenous knowledge indigenous teachings like all like it's just very like it opens up a completely different layer than you would ever um think of originally it opens like so many levels of thinking and critical thinking and analyzation like i don't know it makes you think about things and see things through such a different lens same with like just my human rights courses like there's been so many great aspects that I've that I've taken that just really opens your eyes and makes you look through a different lens um but yeah my journalism courses are good but it's just like they're not as engaging I guess I would say that's why it's not my favorite and it's just very like standard like okay this is what you need to do like ethics um very basic courses that you just have to take because that's your major but nothing like very I say as engaging as like you said your human rights course and your indigenous courses yeah because like for journalism kind of the most exciting part would happen during my third year which is what I'm finishing up now and it was all online so like the coolest parts like you know being able to learn uh, video journalism properly or uh, audio journalism properly like all the resources we had access to all the rooms we had access to like we didn't have access to you know what I mean like we were gonna like with video journalism we would have been using green screens we would have had actual cameras we would have had um we would have been anchoring and like put on an actual news production uh, production but instead we had to do that like through zoom which really sucks you know so I think the coolest parts of my degree I kind of so far had to do through zoom so that's why I would say like um, my indigenous studies courses and my human rights courses have been a lot more effective for me because I was still able to learn and grasp these concepts uh, virtually so COVID is really just taking away the best year of our best years of our lives essentially yeah i think so but you know there's a lot that came out of it i guess a lot of self-reflection a lot of growth a lot of development character development so i think everything happens for a reason positive vibes i love your positive vibes it's important thank you try <laughs> to look at some one of the positives when we where we find ourselves because it looks like covid will probably not be leaving our lives anytime soon just because vaccinations are coming this year doesn't mean we're actually going back to quote-unquote normal and whatever normal is but I know, right? I mean, I'm getting vaccinated tomorrow, actually. So 
okay yeah so so i'm very this, excited for that by the time this actually like airs you're going to be at least you're gonna have at least your first dose so yeah exactly and last question of question period is what is the biggest stereotype about journalism as a whole oh this is an excellent question i'm glad you asked me this okay every single time i tell anybody that i'm studying journalism i hear oh but journalism is a dying industry oh but newspapers nobody buys newspapers anymore journalism is literally prevalent in every single thing we do because journalism is communication and right now i feel like it's more relevant than ever to have truthful and effective media because you know things are misportrayed all the time by the media they miss the most important things and the things that need media attraction are like don't get it ever and it's like why do i find myself as a journalism student covering topics that aren't actually covered by real like mainstream media outlets you know what I mean like why mm -hmm. is it that like that we're all covering this but these aren't things and issues that are already covered or it's why are they always misbetrayed and you know media plays such a drastic role in how people learn and how people think and their perception of things like so I don't know I think the biggest thing is people telling me that it's not relevant and yeah media media is changing now more than ever journalism is changing now more than ever like being a typical like like, let's say you want to be like a reporter for a newspaper, that's not necessarily going to happen for a physical newspaper, but like media outlets, like digital media outlets are like just as important right now as, they, as media outlets have been in the past. You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. everybody gets their news from somewhere and you need it to be from an accurate, reliable source. And that needs to come from somebody. So I think it's more relevant now than ever. It's just transitioning and changing uh, in a way that it's never been. I think, like you said, journalism is not a dying. I can't believe people are saying it's a dying industry. I mean, every time, every single time. It's mostly old people that tell me that. Okay, They're like, really? Well. Journalism? It's a dying industry. And I'm like, really? Like, because where do you get your news from? Like, like in this day and age, everything's so digitalized. So like all the points you were saying, in fact, journalism, like you said, is more relevant now because we need, we have, we had a president, a US president, president of the biggest country and democracy in the world, really talk about fake news as is as is a thing and he was actually reporting fake news and giving a country and the world fake news so journalism investigative proper journalism is is very very important and i think people who say it's a dying industry probably don't know what they're talking about or are still using newspapers when everyone's on their ipads and telephones i mean cell phones so there are different generation <laughs> yeah i just think that is literally like um you're gonna need like need news all the time regardless you need to know what's going on in the world and in your community regardless and where are you gonna get that from like it just looks different now and that's totally okay that's how we're being trained is for more digital journalism than rather than like newspapers and physical print and that's totally okay exactly so now we finished question period going off to question. She's a third year journalism student at Carleton. And to give her credit, journalism at Carleton is one of the hardest programs to get into. I remember my first, I'm not in journalism, I'm in political science, but I had some friends who were in journalism. And I remember someone telling me like, oh, my first year class, they said, look to your left, look to your right. One of you guys are not gonna be here next year. So the fact that she's still third year, going on her fourth in the program, first of all, she got in and then she's still in. So we have to give, credit or credits to because I know journalism at Carleton's not anywhere easy to say thank that. you honestly for saying that because getting into journalism at Carleton is, is actually very hard it's, you need an 87 percent average to get in to be considered um I think it go, ranges from 83 to 88 but like if you want to get in the first few rounds you would have to have a higher average and then to stay in too like so many people drop the court uh the program and they go to communications or they go to English or they go to different areas like which is totally like fine and just as great but it's like you know a lot of people realize it's just not for them mm -hmm. so my first question for you is why did you decide to come all the way to Ottawa from Brampton to study journalism and what attracted you to journalism at Carleton so I actually um was going between journalism at Ryerson and journalism at Carleton Ooh. and it was uh it was big, kind of a difficult schools, the two best schools my ad so for journalism in this country yeah, exactly. And they're the only two schools in Ontario where you would graduate with a Bachelor of Journalism rather than like if you took journalism at another school, it would be a Bachelor of Arts. But if you do it at Carleton or Ryerson, it's a Bachelor of Journalism. So it's a very specialized program and degree. Mm -hmm. um, so that's why those were my two main choices. And I applied to mainly all journalism programs at the time. Um, and there was a lot of factors like 
between both of them, the main the main thing was I wanted to come to Carlton because like I've always liked meeting new people. I've always liked new adventures and trying new things. Like I've always been very, very adventurous. And moving to Ottawa at the time was just like it seemed like an adventure to me, like something new and something different, um, which I was very excited for. And when I also visited the two campuses between Ryerson and Carlton, um, Ryerson, like like I think now I would love going to Ryerson still but at the time like it just wasn't a campus feel it wasn't mm -hmm. what I was looking for like when I thought of university and Carlton did have that it just seemed more homey and more um more comfortable it like it attracted me a lot more when I did the two campus visits um and also Carlton like offered a way more generous scholarship than Ryerson did, which was also a big factor. But I think it was mostly because if I was at Ryerson, I would be in the same community, the same home, the mm -hmm. same city that I've been in my entire life. And I feel like you can't really grow to be the person you're supposed to become or a different person if you're constantly surrounded by the same space and the same environment that you became that version of yourself in. You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. if I like, like I wouldn't change or develop or grow as a person if I'm constantly and only in Brampton and only surrounded by the same people and only with my parents because in that space I became one version of myself but by moving out moving to a different city exploring different things I was able to become a different version of myself and that's not knocking people who decide to stay home or, or can't leave home for other reasons but it's just saying at the time like I wanted to be able to develop as much as possible. I definitely agree with everything you just said because the, I was in the same boat. I applied, I literally only applied to Carleton New Ottawa. Like I applied to three programs at Carleton, two programs at New Ottawa, because I was like, I need to leave Brampton. I need to leave the house I've been in for so many years and my parents for like 18 years. I need to come to Ottawa. And for me, I'm like, like I said, I'm in political science now. And I knew that coming to Ottawa would be the best opportunity for me because I knew the opportunities I would get in terms of politics and policy would benefit me more going to like Ottawa than any other city and I knew that especially being in political science it's very hard after grad to like get yourself in the door and I needed to leverage the four years I'm in my undergrad as possible so I definitely feel like you and I feel like I would have not grown as much if I went to any other school I also specifically did not apply to any other school because knowing who my parents are I love you guys but knowing who my parents are they'll try to maneuver me into staying closer to home and I really just needed to like get away from high school get away from everything and just come to a new bigger better place yeah 100 percent. just try new things uh, experience new experiences Speaking of experiences, what has been your experience so far in journalism in your last three years? Um, I would say <laughs> I haven't loved learning about it, but I love how challenging things have been because it's really made me step outside of my comfort zone in every way possible. Um, I kind of wish it wasn't so I wish it was more practical mm -hmm. learning than uh, like written work and all that but you don't get into practical until third and fourth year. Um, I, I do love some of the stuff I get to do like I, I like video editing and I like um, like putting that type of stuff together and I I like amplifying the voices of marginalized communities like I like that having those opportunities, but I guess like I don't like learning about printers and first year we literally learned for so long about the printing press as if that's ever going to be useful information to me I literally learned how paper was created and how paper was written and I was like like when am I ever going to need to know this but like I I don't know how much I love all the courses and all the training but I guess it's required to some extent but I do like I have enjoyed the the practical aspects of it I think it's giving you a nice education but I don't think it's fair that your tuition is going towards knowing how paper was invented I don't think yeah right beneficial. like I can google that <laughs> like, it's really like, not that serious we have google google exists I don't think that has been as beneficial compared to all the all the other things that you need to be learning in, in order to be a journalist so you are a woman of color so how has that affected your experience in studying journalism both in the classroom and outside of the classroom and kind of like the microaggressions or just people interacting with you how has that have you seen a big um impact of your experience due to you being a woman of color so i noticed in journalism honestly there's not very many people of color and especially like like in at carlton too in my program like there aren't actually that many people of color you usually on like 
one of very few people of color in my class, if not the only person. And I notice it's usually like one other brown girl and then like everyone else is white. And like, there's a huge lack um, when it comes to like uh, BIPOC individuals in journalism. Um, I think it's, it's, it depends like, it depends on like when you're talking about to see how it affects things. But um, like this year, for example, like I focused a lot of my stories regarding um, racial injustices, anti-black racism, anti-indigenous racism. And it's like interesting when you're doing these type of stories that you always have to get a 360 point of view and you wanna to stick to the facts. You can't just be writing on opinion all the time because your work is less effective, less meaningful mm -hmm. if it's just based on opinion. But a lot of the time, uh, the facts do portray what my opinion is, right? It's just it's just what the facts are. But when you, you have to interview a 360 point of view and sometimes you'll get people who just think the absolute opposite of you and it makes it uh, it makes it a little bit difficult sometimes to listen to because you literally get racist people and it's hard to hear as a woman of color. But it's like you're trying to provide a 360 point of view from all parties, all aspects. Um, and there's definitely like microaggressions within the classroom, without the classroom, uh, out of the classroom. Because when you go to university in general, especially going to Carleton, it's filled with a lot of small town people where Ottawa is their idea of a big city. So a lot of these people aren't exposed to like any people of color, any different religions. They're literally only exposed to white people. Um, let me give you an example. My first year, this one girl, um, there's a PowerPoint and it was of a sick RCMP officer. And you could tell that he's clearly sick because he had a um, turban. And like, uh, he also held uh, the little knife that a lot of them carry mm -hmm. for um, like that, which is a part of their religion. And anyway, so you could like just clearly identify it. Like it was easy for me to tell. And this girl is like, oh, it's a picture of a Muslim RCMP officer. I'm like, girl, you think he's Muslim? Why do you think he's Muslim? And she's like, wrong oh, religion. Wrong yeah, religion. I was like, first of all, <laughs> like, what do you mean? Like, what do you mean? And then she's like, look, he's clearly Muslim. He's covering his hair. I'm like, no, girl, Muslim men, like, it's not a requirement for them to cover their hair. He's not Muslim. Like, but it's just that was a huge culture shock for me because coming from Brampton, having such a dominantly large sick community, but also just a diverse community, it's like yep. for us, it'd be so obvious that he's sick. But like the fact that like, you know, like for somebody else, yeah. they had no idea and just assumed that he's Muslim it, or making like, you know, how do you even look Muslim? It's a religion, right? But it's like so interesting to me. That was a huge culture shock. So it's even like things like that, where just getting used to people who aren't exposed to diversity and culture like you are is like very shocking. I think like just talking about that story. Also, we both went to Catholic schools and yes, we have to take religion all four years, but it's mandatory. But as um. I was very excited to take world religions in grade 11, which I believe should be mandatory regardless if it's a Catholic or public school. And we did yeah, learn, I agree. regardless of like, uh, we're both from Brampton. So obviously we know a lot about the Sikh community, but world religions, we learned the difference between Islam and Sikhs. So, and we learned like who wears what and kind of thing. But like you said, not everyone has been exposed to diversity. So being a woman of color and being a black woman is kind of hard sometimes to see like, wow, you guys really didn't learn that. But again, sometimes we do it, we, um, face the same way when we're learning more about like sexuality and like disabilities and ableism and so forth we learn more about because when you're not in that community then you don't really know about it but some some things to this day I'm shocked that people don't know about it especially with google no, and everything it, yeah it's so shocking honestly but it's like you take we take that stuff for granted like being exposed to different cultures different religions like I deal with that type of stuff all like I dealt with all that the, sorry that type of stuff going to Ottawa so often and it was like very shocking for me because I'm like how do you not know? But it's, you know, the majority of people don't know. The majority of people are not in diverse communities. They literally are surrounded by only white people. So it's like, like so many people don't know. They can't tell the difference. They think anybody who covers their hair is Muslim. So it's like so crazy to me, but that was the reality of it. And that was something that was like, yeah, it was a, it was a culture shock. Going into like the next question, you are an activist and you are someone who champions for human rights. Also, that is your minor. So how do you balance activism and activism and quote unquote being unbiased when reporting and investigating stories? So biggest thing, like I mentioned earlier, is you just have to base things on the facts. It is a fact that Black students in the Toronto Peel District School Board um, and the Toronto, sorry, Toronto District School Board and Peel District School Board are suspended at a higher rate than white students. So that's a fact. And 
that is racism. But if I just said, oh, the school board is racist, people are going to be like, okay, that's your opinion. But when I present to you the facts of how Black students are getting suspended way more than any other student for doing the same things as the other students of other cultures and other like races, that just betrays facts. You know what I mean? When you back things up with data, people can't really argue with you because they're facts. So it's like, it's like not just writing opinion pieces because you know, you can have an opinion, but how effective is that going to be? When you give somebody the facts, they can't really argue with it. Mm -hmm. And going off of that, when you publish stories that are not seen as mainstream media, how do you deal with like the opposition or quote unquote backlash? Like you said, like you have reported on but stories of like marginalized communities. So when you pull, you kind of talked about, but I'm um, going more into detail. When you publish these stories, how has the reception been in the classroom, outside the classroom? And how have you navigated that? Um, I think people like to see it, but the only people who really like to see it are people of color. You know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. it's like, I always get good feedback and people are happy and they're like, they like to see that finally being amplified, but I haven't ever gotten a ton of positive feedback from white people. So it's like, I think of like generally gotten really great great support, great feedback, but from people of color because they're going through the same issues. They, that's their voice that they want amplified, you know? So it, it depends who it's from. That's fair. Do you believe that journalism should be 100% unbiased? And do you believe that, or do you believe that journalism should be a little more biased and have more room for opinions? Again, that's also a very big question. So answer it however you can. I think that journalism should be based on the facts and regardless of what the facts are, but within context. So a lot of things I notice with media is media takes things out of context and it honestly can make people look way worse than what they mean or what they say. So I think it needs to be based on the facts within context of what the situation is. Um, so like, for example, op-ed like opinion pieces are cool and they're good but I never like have been super I guess like uh I, I've never really cared to do them because like I don't know like you know your opinion isn't a fact your opinion isn't isn't like it, it's just your opinion you know what I mean which which is important but it's not I don't think it's like super effective or, you know, like when you, when you can show people facts, you can educate them and you can really show them and demonstrate a whole different layer of things that they were not exposed to prior to that piece of information. So like, you know, when I feel like it's, it's an opportunity to educate people when you can present them facts rather than just your opinion. So I don't think it should be biased. I think you should do your best to get all aspects, get every, every part you can, like, let's say you're writing a piece um, on politics, you have to interview like the four major parties or at least three of the major parties, but you definitely have to get a right-wing uh, person and a left-wing person because if you're just gonna get left-wing people, like, you know, the it's gonna be biased. You have to get all, all aspects, whether you, regard, uh, whether you agree with it or not. And that's the importance of journalism to give a very broad and um, truthful aspect of whatever you're reporting. So like if you talk about politics, make sure you are including all of them. And as someone who's in politics, sometimes it's kind of me, I'll be very um, honest. Sometimes I'm hearing like opinions from maybe political parties I don't believe in. And sometimes it's like, why are your, why is your voice being amplified? But I also, ha I also have to understand that that's sadly the way it has to be in order for us to effectively get the information that's presented to us like it can't be only the parties I believe because we can't it's um it's an I can't be hearing an echo chamber like I actually have to hear other parties and sometimes hearing other parties actually helps your argument because if you're hearing other parties and hearing what they talk about it kind of likes okay this is what you're arguing and this is how I'm arguing and this is how I'm going to counter arguing so it goes on to the importance of how journalism should be um Another thing I want to talk about is I like how you keep talking about data and facts and as someone who is like again I'm in politics. Um, I do end up wanting to. I want to do research, and one thing I found out in Canada specifically, when it comes to data, there isn't. For um, I think between 1980 to 2019, there was a ban on race-based data from the Canadian police. So from those two decades, if I'm not two three decades, we didn't have. There wasn't actual informative data of how the police were. Um, 
interacting with different races, which is very impactful because from that time, we don't know whatever is being said. I mean, obviously there is data, but it's not as true and factual as would have been if that ban wasn't. So as someone like you, as your journalist, you're trying to like do a paper on how black people are being, um, inter how black people are interacting with the police. And it's kind of hard for you because the data is not there. So if you as a journalist don't have the data, then you can't make a very coherent and fact-based piece which is annoying and I can assume. Yeah, and it's a it's a huge problem in itself because a lot of my data is from 2011 sometimes because we don't have race-based data because people are not corporations, um, so, like, um, sorry, like areas like the police and uh, the government are not, are not collecting race-based data. And it's like, really, it's, like that's a problem in itself, but it's really difficult too when you're trying to prove these type of things because your data is not always up to date. Like sometimes that can get really great, like 2020, 2019 statistics, but a lot of the time these stats are from like 2011, 2016 censuses. So it's not even as accurate as it could be. Like this one um, story that I did recently, um, so, uh, it was talking about the uh, the fact that black history isn't taught and it isn't mandatory in a lot of schools. And I was giving statistics about how many, the percentage of people in Ontario who are black, the percentage of Canadians that are black. And the only data that I can get that was legit and um, like, you know what I mean? From a reliable mm -hmm. source said that there was like around 2.9% of Canada was black. But now that's such a grow, it's a growing number. There's over 3% of Canada that's black now. So it's like that number isn't even as accurate so yeah it's really difficult to work when there isn't accurate and up-to-date race-based data um because like that's what a lot of these stories are about so sometimes it's a little bit outdated i think people also have to understand that when you're talking about race-based data that is not racist or don't be fearful as a corporation or your or, or, or an organization like oh i have to collect race-based data i have to like that is not racist in fact you're doing more good than harm what's racist is that using that data to as a way to backfire or um insult or demi diminish um black people or women of color in that organization or, or people of color in that organization or um corporation like we need race race-based data to your point to see what is actually being done because as um women of color if we want um more action to be done in our various communities we need the data to be, show that okay as um, Canada is doing XYZ, Canada is racist in this regard, and we don't have the data, we can't do it. And like you, you don't have the data, you can't report. And if you can't report, you can't let people know what's going on in their country, you can't educate people. So it is a domino effect. So it starts very small. And also, just to add, we are, well, me and Amira, we're like 20. Um, but if you're, I believe, 18, or I don't know if you're younger, please, that census that comes out every like five years, tell your parents make sure you do that census because it allows the government to know what's going on in every writing and every um community in every province and in that way we can they have the information to know okay what can be done and so forth yeah 100 percent. like people don't realize how important it actually is um i don't know like it's it's actually so, like race-based data is actually so important because it has to do with equity and how things um how uh, certain groups of people, marginalized groups, are affected in ways that white people aren't. And it's, it's literally just evidence and proof. And like, there's so many issues like within systematic racism, like why, why are people not able to do this? Because, you know, there's factors that they're limited of. So it's just, there's a lot of aspects that go into it. Like even like, uh, for a while, there was a way lower percentage and still today there's a way lower percentage of black women in university and black men in university compared to white people why is that it doesn't have anything to do with like intelligence no it has to do with opportunity it has to do with um uh sorry what's the word economical conditions it has to do with their environment it has to do with so many aspects that can be proved through race-based data very important very important and again, just going off race-based data, it needs to be done. Um, and like I said previously, just reiterating my point, it's not racist to do so. And it does more good than harm. And like you said, it gives, like you keep saying throughout this um, recording, you kept saying like facts, facts, facts. And having those statistics makes it your argument and makes your article or what you publish more, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It stands out. It makes it seem like I'm not writing this based of opinion. I'm 
running this based off fact. So it gives more um, legitimacy to your points, which is very important because there people can actually start taking you seriously and from there action can be done. Yeah, 100%. Um, what is your current opinion on journalism today, especially with the rise of quote unquote fake news, um, people um, not believing the news? What, how, how, do you, how have you seen it evolved, especially through your actual studies of it and actually doing it, going out on the streets and being a, um, reporting on it? And what do you think can be done better? I think literally right now, everybody's trying to be a journalist without realizing it and without having the proper like education or the proper training for it. So there's people who are um, like, you know, a lot of YouTubers, a lot of bloggers, a lot of people who are delivering like news um, without looking at the facts and without having the proper training um, towards it. But there's a lot of things that are like for me that I noticed are misbetrayed in the media and that like I mentioned earlier has a big big um, factor in people form opinions on things and how people receive knowledge and because of that because of how media portrays a lot of religions and cultures and things like people have a negative portrayal on a certain group I'm going to give an example the way that like Muslims are constantly stereotyped as like terrorists or there's a negative and Islamophobia is very, very prevalent um, because of how the media portrayed Muslims after 9-11. And like, you know, like it's such a like, if you know anything about anything, like you would know that like that Islam is the opposite of of like terrorists. You know what I mean? The religion literally, the word, yeah, the word literally means peace. Like that's, that's what it teaches. But you have people who claim to be Muslim, even though you can't be Muslim if you're a terrorist. But people now take this and it gives such a bad image to Muslims everywhere. And it's the same thing that black people do with all the time. Like, why is it that crime that's portrayed by black people is constantly amplified, but black excellence isn't in the media? Mm -hmm. You know, there's so many black professionals, so many black people in amazing industries, but it's like, that's not shared and that's not amplified, but rather black crime is. And it's just, it's ridiculous. And it's, it's not hopeful to black youth either because they don't see themselves in positions of greatness because it's not being demonstrated. And how are you supposed to now achieve something if you don't see anybody like you in that position? When there's so many people like that, it's just, they're not shown or demonstrated by the media, but rather criminalized. And the media wants to portray what the media wants. And another thing people have to have to understand, these media corporations, especially in Canada, they're owned by, I think, only two or three big corporations. And what those corporations want is what the media now funnels out and expresses to the world. So if the media, if the corporations want to give XYZ um, portrayal of this community, they're going to do that through the media. And that's what we're going to be seeing. So it's very important that as young people, and as we navigate the digital space of journalism and news, we make sure we're doing our research because there are journalists out there like yourself who are doing the work to, to make sure that the voices are being amplified and it's either A, not being heard or B, it's not, it's being funneled out for other stuff and it's being prior, it's not being prioritized compared to these stories of, you know, Black people do X, Y, Z and Black people do this, like this image that has been created of many marginalized communities needs to disintegrate I don't know how that's going to be done because that's a system of that's a symptom of racism but it's an effect of um, journalism like we just talked about yeah and even like like speaking as a like brown uh sorry speaking as a um yeah South Asian Muslim woman of color like I feel like I'm constantly trying to change everybody's perception negative perception on islam and that shouldn't be my job you know what mm -hmm. i mean it's like i'm i always feel like i have to like be a better person and do more good and spread more good so people stop so that i can be somebody's uh reason why they stop thinking of islam negatively and it's like you know that's how a lot of black people feel too like i have a lot of black friends who literally feel like they have to work extra hard just so people don't think so negatively about about black people and it's like it's such an unfortunate reality that people have no idea how it feels like you know you don't know what that feels like unless you're in that position and it's a lot of pressure on an individual to constantly feel like they don't have room to screw up they don't have room to mess up and you know as humans like you're gonna mess up and you're you're not gonna be successful all the time you're gonna fail and like to think that because of how the media has portrayed so many cultures and so many religions negatively and how other people have formed perceptions and prejudices on 
groups of people and marginalized groups, like just because of societal standards, like I feel like I don't have room to screw up because if I screw up, it's like, oh, it's it's because she's Muslim. Oh, it's because she's South Asian. Like, you know, it's like, it's mm-hmm. like such a hard standard to keep up with. Uh, everything you just said, I completely 5,100% agree with you. It's just like as women of color, it's kind of like we don't have room to mess up. And these spaces that we're in, we're usually the only colored person there like for you in journalism you're one of the only colored people there as someone who's in politics it's literally like a just a stream of white people who have to be very frank and it's just like we don't have the room to mess up and we're used as the example and if like we mess up then the example is like oh black people can do this muslim women can do this like it's not fair to put all of those stereotypes on us as like like going off of what we can mess up especially as women we have to be especially as colored women we have to kind of be this nice attitude like we always have to have a smile on our face being helpful being this 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 and especially as a black woman if I'm not this nice helpful interactive person oh she's the angry black woman or she has oh my goodness or this this, I hear that all the time you know I always people love to be like they love to say that black women are always in a bad mood or they're always angry they always have an attitude and you know how much pressure that puts on black women i don't like, have an attitude so what, you're sorry. not allowed to have a bad day like you're not allowed to have a bad day like you're not allowed to like you don't have to be nice to every single person but that's because you're a person that's not specifically because you're black mm-hmm. you're not you're not angry with somebody because you're black that has nothing to do with anything you're just angry at a person you know what i mean like yeah like it's- i hear that all the time and it's very frustrating and And one thing I've also realized that a lot of some of my friends are like um shy or quiet and that's another thing I see especially with black women colored women and women of color is that the more shy um quiet ones you know they usually just are to themselves but sadly society tries to paint them as oh they have an attitude they're this and this where I promise you if you interact with them they're some of the sweetest nicest people but sadly because society has made it seem that women have to especially women of color have to be this you know nice out nice time attitude. we don't have the energy to be angry and if I'm actually actually angry over something that actually angers me I know that's a I've said anger how many times, but if I actually have an issue that causes me to be angry, I'm not allowed to because, oh, it's her emotions or this, this, this. And they're more focused on the reaction than the action. And that takes away from our work. So for you, for instance, if you're publishing this piece on marginalized communities and so forth, and people are more focused on the reaction than the actual action and the actual facts of the matter, that this is going on in communities and you guys are not, and this is um, a distraction of what's actually being done. You guys are more focused on our attitudes than the work and the action that needs to be done needs to be changing these systems and institutions so I just went on a passionate rant because it's just as a black woman I'm just tired of it I don't want to hear it I don't want to have to be in rooms with a smile on my face all the time like I just don't want to not everyone's happy all the time and if I'm not this happy person for one day out of a week or a month then you can deal with it because we have to deal with men and their attitudes and stuff like that so had to be said yeah, I agree. Do you feel like your voice is being heard in these rooms, in these journalism rooms, when you publish your pieces, when you um want to talk to your TA, talk to your professor, talk to this um news outlet about how I want to publish this? Do you feel like they're actually hearing your voices, your voice? I I think right now, um, after this summer, after like right now, it's being it's being heard more. But before this year. I don't think so. And I think the reason why it's being heard right now is because because we're literally in the middle of like a huge social resistance movement. Mm-hmm. Um, people, white people are scared to not accept uh, people of color now. Like, mm-hmm. I think they're like, they don't want to be labeled as racist. So it's like, oh, you wrote a story. You, you wrote a BIPOC story. Okay, let's publish that. Like, that's, that's important because they don't have their white students writing about it usually, you know? Mm-hmm. It's like before this year I worked twice as hard and fought twice as hard not only because um not only because I'm brown but because I'm a woman I were I know I worked twice as hard to achieve the same things and to get the same things accomplish the same things um as a lot of like white males let's say in comparison but this year I've noticed a lot more like like I think they're just I think white people are just scared of being accused of being racist so they like are just like okay yeah let's do this let's do that they're very like yes and like very like oh, that's a great piece and everything now. But I think like before they were like, you know, there was never so much attention on it, but it's literally because we're in the middle of this movement right now. 100%. And 
again, when we early, when we started this episode, we kind of talked about like trying to look at the positives of being in a pandemic. And honestly, sadly, the sad part is that one of the reasons why Black Lives Matter and this social resistance ha- was amplified was because we're in, a pan- we're in a pandemic and we were in our houses and we didn't have a room to escape. And especially being a Black woman having to see that constantly is just it's kind of exhausting, but it sadly is getting the work that needs to be done after years. Of course, I would love the int of the uh, intention to be like, oh, we actually want to hear your stories, not because oh, I don't want to be labeled as a racist. I think some people are more scared of the label than the actual act. Like you're more scared of being labeled as racist than actually not being racist, which is troubling in its own self. But yeah, and the thing too is like if you once you really deconstruct these layers, you'll like like people will understand the different lenses of it as well because like the like all white people are racist but they're not all hateful Mm -hmm. and it's it's just like how all all men are technically sexist Mm -hmm. and and like let me deconstruct that before people like listen to this and go crazy the way that works in a nutshell I guess is let's say you're a white individual and you get a job and yes your job is you got it because of your accomplishments and how you presented yourself but let's say it's in comparison to another person of color who has the same accomplishments um they have the same qualifications they are just as qualified as you are for the job and let's say subconsciously you are picked over them due to you being a white male or you being a white person let's say that's the reason but you're not aware of it and let's say even the person who hiring you doesn't act like that's the reason okay maybe maybe they don't even admit to themselves that that's the reason but let's say you got this job through white privilege so you are now going to take that job which makes sense because you know you need to make an income you need to make an earning somehow so you're going to take that job but that's you using your white privilege by you using that white privilege it just you literally like it is you yeah you are racist and you're but it's not saying that you're hateful it's not saying that you don't like black people or people of color it's just that all white people like by you all white people are racist it's just whether or not you're going to exercise it just like for a man like a lot of the time you're going to get things over a woman because you're a man there's going to be certain stigmas and certain certain things that 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 make you quote-unquote more qualified or able to earn more money or whatever because people think you're a man so you're going to use that to your advantage obviously you're not going to give up these opportunities and say no you know you're going to you're going to take it to your advantage and use it and that makes you sexist but it's not saying that you're hateful against women it just means you're you're that's you're practicing what your privilege is and like that's just what it is so it's like it's just certain layers that people don't understand and they don't care to understand because they don't want to be labeled as racist but ultimately all white people are racist it's just you have to really understand like where that comes from and how that comes into play exactly like racism has like you said layers and racism is not you just as a non-black person hurling the end slur to me like that's that's a racist act but that's not the only racist thing that can be like microaggressions which i feel like a lot of people outside of marginalized communities don't understand that that is a form they don't of yeah they don't they like, don't understand microaggressions and i'm gonna give you an example um like it, it's so true like you know like okay a lot I'm, I'm not gonna say all white people because i'm not gonna generalize but mm-hmm. like um a lot of individuals who are white do not understand microaggressions but when you explain it to them and then when they take it upon themselves to learn obviously like they can under they can um like learn more about it but i'm gonna give you an example so um <laughs> some like some girls that i used to know before they the one girl would literally always be like um yeah like I'm gonna uh, she's like I'm gonna make sure I marry like a dark-skinned man but uh, only because like I want my babies to have cute hair and nice eyes but like I don't know if I date a black guy but like I'm gonna marry them just to make sure that like you know I get the cute mixed kids microaggression first of all second second of all that like sorry to interrupt we live um I don't want to shame people but we live in um we're from Brampton and that type of comment is like not a rarity to be honest like especially us growing up like I'm not hearing that is just not a surprise to me and like like you're saying it's a microaggression because it's fetishization like you only care about exactly people or black men for like for eurocentric anyway that's that, that's another yeah. topic of this episode but on another day i will definitely talk about that because that's a whole problem in itself but continue 100 percent, yeah it, and it goes into sexualizing black men as well i had another uh another person I used to be friends with, clearly I'm not friends with him for <laughs> more than one reason, but um, another person who she was like, um, she said, oh, I need to date a black guy. Like I'm done with these white uh, white boys. I need a black guy so I can get black 
and I don't need to finish the sentence you, you already know you, you already know what I'm gonna say but it's like that sexualizing black men like what do you like you don't want them because of the person they are you want them for a different reason um another thing that one of the girls uh also said was she was like she would call she named her food baby okay you know when you get like a little bit you eat mm-hmm. too much food and you get a little bloated so she named her food baby and she always referred to it as her food baby Daquan and she named it Daquan because she's like yeah I'm gonna marry a I'm no I'm gonna have children with a black man so I can have mixed kids so I'm gonna name him Daquan and it's like this is like the whitest girl ever like you know and it's like I wish you could see my face right now like I wish it's not funny yeah like that's not a joke like or like or another thing um that one of them said was so one of my other friends has like a ethnic name and it's I guess it's difficult to pronounce as like a white person, but I don't think it's that difficult. But she would, this girl would always be like to her, like, um, oh, I don't know how to say your name. Can I, can I call you this? And then she would give a nickname, like a anglicized nickname. No, you can't, you can't call me this. Just learn how to say my name, even though it doesn't sound like freaking Karen, like just learn how to say an ethnic name. It's not hard. Just learn, you know? So these are all microaggressions that people don't realize. And if you ask them, like if I ever told them, like, like I mean I don't talk to them anymore but if I ever do like I would love to address these issues but like um if they they would be like no I'm not racist like what how how could you think I'm racist but these are all such racist comments because they're microaggressions but a lot of people don't understand that they're microaggressions exactly like also like going over what you said I definitely relate to like the ethnic name and also another example of a microaggression is like as a black woman like oh can I touch your hair as black black women we definitely change up our hairs a lot and I don't think that is a problem I think that's just an act of resilience and what our our choice is and like coming to school if if you talk to probably any black girl who's worked in a who's been in an environment that's not predominantly black you're gonna see like oh you changed your hair today or your hair got longer if I decide to get braids the next day or can I touch your hair I really like your natural hair like I'm so sorry the hair that like, grows no, on top of my head touch my hair. yeah it's like, not um, the amount of like I'm yeah sorry. first of all you're not an animal second of all you spend money on the product that goes on your hair third of all you're not gonna wash your hair every day so why do you want their dirty fingers in it like you know what I mean it's like they don't understand because a lot of these a lot of white girls wash their hair every single day they don't understand mm-hmm the differences and the work and the effort that's put into your hair and it's like those are all microaggressions and when you're constantly asked to touch it you're acting like that person's an animal like you're dehumanizing them and these are all things that people don't realize because they don't care to look through that lens and that all contributes to racism and like the point you just made like as a natural natural hair products guys are not cheap okay they are very expensive ask any black girl and they tell you when they go to the beauty supply store first of all i can't go that's another form of racism since we're also talking about that i can't go to freaking shoppers drug mart or walmart like just recently they started to like add um other brands but it's in a very small section so for a lot of women who um live in Ontario with the um restrictions so forth we can't get our natural hair products so some of us are actually suffering they're very expensive because there's like it depends on your hair texture and what works for your hair so you're talking about I have to buy shampoo deep condition conditioner I have to buy in like some styling products like that's not all cheap and like you said I don't wash my hair frequently and wash day like when we wash our hair it's a day's process like I'm not talking about like one two like five minutes I'm talking about like a day so all of these yeah so somebody touching that and putting more dirt into your hair I would be cheesed don't do it like I don't have black hair and I get cheese when people touch my hair anyways because I don't want your I don't touch my own hair like that so why would I want your hand oils going into my hair (laughs) you know what I mean like and these all just contribute to like racism so when we talk about this I feel like people think of racism with a hard r like oh my gosh on this 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 like racism has layers and microaggressions are definitely a part of it I think people just like you said don't pay attention to it because it seems as less than or so forth where in reality like it's the same it's racist when you say it but you should when someone's calling you out on being racist i'm not gonna like you know label you i don't like i'm not gonna do cancel culture on you but you when i say oh this act is racist and explain to you why your first thing should be oh my apologies and then making sure you don't continue that act so if i tell you don't touch my hair for x y reasons first of all then another reason another thing that i feel like women of color have to do is that we have to always we are forced to always explain ourselves like when i tell you i don't want you to touch my hair i don't feel like i have to give you a you know essay paragraph an essay of why you shouldn't touch my hair i think it's very it's like it's very common sense like just don't touch another person's hair without their consent 
But like, if I tell you, oh, don't touch my hair for X, Y reasons, you should just say, oh, okay, I definitely understand. I'm so sorry, I won't do it again. And then I'm not gonna like think, oh, this person is this, this, this. Like, there's a difference between being a racist person and do and conducting a racist act. Like, yeah, 100%. Different. Like, I, I wouldn't go around like being like, oh, those people are racist. Exactly. Like, like, but, but like, you know, I can't be friends with them because they like constantly like portray racist attitudes. Like, like that's just me. I don't feel comfortable being friends with people 100%. who portray racist attitudes, but I'm not going to go around being like, oh, this person's a racist. Like, you know, that doesn't make me any better of a person exactly. by exposing somebody else. Like, I'm just saying that like, you know, I don't feel comfortable like engaging with you. We don't, we don't cap carry the same morals. We don't have the same ethics or perspectives or views. You don't understand what I understand. So it's like, I don't see any reason to be friends, but it's like, I'm not going to go around like telling people you're racist. Exactly. Wow. We went on a big like talk about racism, but again, it's very prevalent in this world. And with like Black Lives Matter, we so, like with the Black Lives Matter um, movement, like really increasing last year, I think it's very important that we have these talks and talk about how racism is prevalent. Pretty much everything that we know of, journalism, politics, education, health, like it's not going away. It's a system. And it's just not something that you think that, oh, you posting a couple of slides off. Again, I'm not going to go into that because, again, that's a whole other episode's worth. But, like, it's just not posting a couple, you know, in infographs on Instagram last last summer and saying, I'm doing the work. Like, what are you doing to actually deconstruct racism and try to, like, uh, take away racism from these institutions? It's hard, but it needs to be done. These conversations like these need to be helped so people can be educated. And, again, that's why we have... Journalists, journalists like Amira talking about these things and amplifying marginalized communities so people can get educated and they can do better in their communities. End off, sorry, we're gonna end off the episode. It's a very good informative episode on two last things. So one question is, one of the two last questions I have for you is what has been your coolest moment of journalism so far? Hmm. Like a story hmm. you published, an, um, a something in your class that you did, like something that you said like, well, this is very cool. I'm very happy that I was able to do this being in journalism. Honestly, um, being in journalism enabled me a lot of really cool experiences and opportunities, things that I wouldn't have done otherwise. Like um, one I'll touch quick um, on upon was like, I, uh, I did a story on um, like myself and, and my partner, like we did a story on the fact that adults with autism have a very, very, very difficult time um, with employment because people don't want to hire uh, people with disabilities. And like, that was just like, and we, we did a mini documentary on it. And it was honestly a really interesting experience. I learned a lot. I realized how huge this issue is you know what I mean like how are the people with autism need to make an income just as much as someone who someone else anybody else they're still a person they still have expenses and lives and it's like they still need to get a career and a job and it's so many people don't want to hire people with autism because they don't know anything about autism they don't you know they don't know there's so many stigmas uh around it that people don't know about that was a cool experience. Another experience that was really cool, I would say was actually very recent in my most recent story that I did with one of my partners. Um, it was like I mentioned before, it was the the uh, fact that black history isn't taught and mandatory in the high school curriculum in Ontario. And the reason why that was like cool for me was because we actually got some really awesome sources. We got in touch with a lot of people I didn't think we'd be able to get in touch with. Um, I'll send you the story if you're interested yes, in reading yes, it yes. but it was honestly one of the first stories that I was genuinely excited to write about and like I don't get that a lot you know where I'm excited to work on a story but I was like genuinely really excited working on it and I worked hard on it um so moments like that is like you know you like when you see that your hard work is going somewhere and it gets published and it gets put out there like that's really like satisfying and it's really nice to see that your stuff is actually like doing something and going out somewhere so I don't know moments like that are are definitely rewarding that makes me really happy I'm also going to make sure to leave like the link to her documentary and some of the work she's published in like the description file so you guys better um watch and listen to all the listen watch listen and read to all of them and the last question I want to ask to end off this important informative episode of journalism and the importance of fact-based journalism is what is one thing that is not talked about in mainstream media that you want that you feel needs more attention that could be in any topic 
I think something that needs more attention is a lot of the issues related around the LGBTQ plus community, the queer community. I think they don't get any attention really um, when it comes to a lot of the crises. Um, I think that's a, like, I think issues around the queer community um, really aren't amplified and a lot of the, um, like a lot of issues regarding mental health and the queer community are all, these are all aspects that aren't shared because people are uncomfortable with talking about it. People don't wanna talk about it because people think it's not right or it's not okay, or that's what, you know, they're not comfortable mm -hmm. with it. So they don't portray these stories. And there's a lot of aspects that are involved in it. So I think definitely more attention towards the LGBTQ community would be very important because there's so many, so many things um, that need to be taught about and people need to be educated about and understood when it comes to that. 100%. Amir, thank you so much for dedicating the last hour of educating us about the importance of journalism and talking about your experience of being a journalism student. Thank you so much for talking about everything and journalism. And I really hope that if you've been listening, you've learned something more and you've learned also you've been educated a little more about racism and microaggressions. So yeah, I'll, I'll make sure to leave her Instagram, her the links to her um, pieces out so you guys can actually watch listen and read all of them thank you so much again for dedicating an hour of your time for us thank you for having me of course